Hi, and welcome to the Passionistas Project podcast, where we talk with women who are following their passions to inspire you to do the same. We're Amy and Nancy Harrington, and today we're talking with Dr. Melissa Bird. As a clairvoyant coach, author, and fiery public speaker, Melissa has traveled around the world talking to audiences at universities, conferences, and churches. Her combination of education, real-life experience, and practical advice makes her a powerful force of change in the lives of the people she speaks to. Past audience members have described her as fierce, revelatory, life-changing, enthusiastic, and inspirational. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Melissa Bird. Hi, Melissa, we're so glad you're here. What's the one thing you're most passionate about? It's evolved over time, right? So it used to be that I was the most passionate about helping women and girls use their voice, right? Like that was sort of the foundation from which I operated for a long time. And lately, like in the last two years, I think it's really turned into helping people really learn how to harness the power of their rebellion for good and really healing the shame and wounding we have around rebelliousness and helping people really identify what it is that they feel deeply passionate about so that they can go out and do that thing. And usually it is an act of rebellion to be able to go out and do that thing. Why is that so important? And what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I think we get sent this very powerful message from internalized misogyny and externalized patriarchy that says, you know, if you speak out, if you, if you have an opinion that is different than what we think is appropriate, which is often steeped in white supremacy and racism, by the way, like if you speak against anything that is outside of that norm, then you are a rebel. And for so long, we have been taught that we're not allowed to say what's on our mind. And yet we all have a different opinion and we all have feelings and we all have things that are on our minds. And I think that it is time for us to just screw it. Like, forget about it. Like, just say it. And I can easily say that from my little, you know, beautiful corner of the world. And sometimes it's, it's deadly for people to say that. And in fact, Right before this, I was in a mastermind group with a bunch of other people that I'm participating in and I was sobbing and I was like, I am terrified to peel off this next layer of who I am and speak this truth about dismantling empire Christianity. And here, I'm just going to come out on the podcast right now about dismantling empire Christianity as someone who believes deeply in God. Like, and I preach it, my Episcopal church and thinking about how do we heal the pain of years of patriarchal, you know, internalized messaging and how do we start to engage in absolute rebellion around those things so that it's no longer dangerous for everybody to speak because we're all speaking. Why does that scare you so much? I'm just really afraid of being killed for it. Like, Honestly, like whether I get eviscerated, you know, trolled, taken down, shut down, literally killed, you know, when I was doing LGBT activism in Utah, before I went to get my PhD, I was born and raised in Utah. Like I'd grown up there. 
And I remember I had been with my wife, my ex-wife, and, um, you know, we never held hands in public because we couldn't. It was dangerous to do that. And I remember when she left and I ended up dating men again because I'm bisexual. And I remember when my now husband held my hand for the first time in public and I pulled my hand away and he's like, what's wrong? And I was like, we can't, that's dangerous. And he's like, looking at me like, (laughs) what is wrong with you? And I was like, I had this, I started crying and I was like, I had this moment where I realized I haven't touched another human being in public in 12 years. Cause when you do, you get attacked and physically and emotionally abused. Right. So here I am on this edge of this next expansion of my life. And like, this is what I love about the work that you all are doing is the stories you highlight and the work that you all are doing brings us to the next level. You're showing how we evolve over time. The woman I was when I was in my twenties is not the woman that I am now, like my whole life, the things I focus on, the things I'm passionate about has evolved over time. And we have to allow for that as women supporting other women. And I think oftentimes we think we're only allowed to be passionate about that thing we were still passionate about 15, 20 years ago. No. And really honing in on what does light us up and what does make us feel passionate and being willing to honor that in, in each other instead of trying to destroy that in each other. I think that's why I'm afraid. I think that's the point that it all evolves and that we need to keep evolving. Somehow um, we expect ourselves to like be fully evolved by the time we're like 27. Like I see it in my daughter who's 19. She's like, she's like, I feel like I'm totally behind. And I'm like, what are you behind? Like, behind what? Jeez. (laughs) What are you behind it? And she's like, and she always refers back to Instagram and Snapchat and, you know, these, these people that she's watching who have made it by like 23 and I'm all, but that's not real. (laughs) And, and how to help her still be excited and ambitious and support her. And like, I don't want to say that young people are deluded because I think they can do whatever they want, but sometimes these delusions of being behind and somehow they're supposed to be catching up to something that's not, that doesn't exist. I think it's just, we're in such a fascinating time. I think I really do believe we're on the precipice of really major change. I mean, if there's anything we've learned from COVID-19, it is that everything is different. And, and so I love how people keep trying to tell us that we're going to get back to normal. I'm like, no, we're not because your normal and my normal are not the same. And what you thought was normal was actually called white supremacy and racism and heteronormativity and sexism. And that's not, you know, that's falling. Let's take a step back. You mentioned that you grew up in Utah. Tell us a little bit about your childhood, your family background, your heritage, and what impact that has on your life today. I did grow up in Utah, but I'm okay. No, I'm just kidding. I grew up in Park City, Utah before Sundance became a thing. So we lived in Salt Lake and then we moved to Park City. I did not grow up in a traditional LDS household. So um, part of that was because my dad committed suicide when I was six. And my mother was basically forcibly pushed out of um, our local ward by our bishop. And so 
she lost her faith. I don't know that my mom, my mom is funny because I don't know that she'd ever say she had a strong faith, but you know, she did what she was supposed to be doing. So this was 1980, which even though we like to pretend that Utah is like, you know, this goody two shoe state, it was also the height of the cocaine epidemic. Right. So mom started partying and she started, her heart was broken. Like my dad broke her heart. And, um, I didn't realize that at the time, of course, cause I was a kid, I was six years old and we ended up in a lot of chaos in growing up. My dad is Southern Paiute. And so I was also cut off from my indigenous native American heritage. And that was a very complicated relationship anyway, because my grandparents are not the kindest people on the planet on his side of the family. And so what happened was I ended up being mostly raised by my aunt, uh, my aunt Nancy and my grandma, Mary. So my grandma and my aunt basically raised me and my sister and they were both very involved in the junior league and the league of women voters. And so I learned that it wasn't rude to talk about politics at the table. And I learned how to volunteer because say what you will about Utah, I actually feel like the, the strong service component of the LDS church is really beautiful. And I learned a lot about serving others and talking about politics. And so as I was growing up, I always just assumed that women were involved in politics because of my aunt and my, my grandma. And so I staged my first protest when I was 17, I was a senior in high school and I found Ms. Magazine and I could not believe that there were all these atrocities happening in the world. (laughs) And so I staged my first, it was a one woman protest because no one else would go with me, but you know, they didn't want to get in trouble, but I like discovered that there's this whole world out there and really started getting involved in action and activism. Then I think that was really the birth of it. And I was not a very good student. The only reason I have a PhD was just to prove myself. I'm really smart, but like I was in and out of college and just really struggled and really struggled with my sexual orientation and really, really struggled with religion because I was told my whole life through messaging that I was not worthy of God and love. And at the same time, I was hearing from my grandma, my aunt, how fabulous and wonderful and beautiful and worthy I was of all these things. And so it's been a hell of a ride. I've always wanted Angelina Jolie to play me for my made for television movie on Lifetime Television Network. Like really, like that's always Angelina Jolie is going to play me in my movie. But, you know, I've I like to say I've been married almost as much as Liz Taylor. I've been through a lot of marriages to men and women. And, you know, here I am living in Corvallis, Oregon with three kids and this husband and running three businesses, actually, (laughs) because, you know, one just wasn't enough. And I'm coaching these women to like heal their rebel shame and wounding and, and really like engaging in tapping into their intuition and their magic to make a difference in their lives and their communities. And it's, really awesome. So I had this really chaotic bananas childhood and was partially homeless, like technically like couch surfing and didn't know what I was doing. And, and now here I am. Who knew? At what point, if at all, did you reconnect with the indigenous side of your family? Because I was cut off from that part of my family. I actually was trying to figure out more about my dad, but I couldn't really ask my mom because it's too painful for her. And I didn't want to bugger with it. So back in 2006, I Google searched my dad 
his name because I wanted to find his obituary because I, I don't think I'd ever seen it. And so in 2006, I Google searched my dad and my uncle Arvel popped up because my uncle Arvel is a musician. And I remember my uncle Arvel because he used to play the devil goes down to Georgia on the fiddle for me when I was little kid, like before I was six. And I remembered that and he played the fiddle for Alabama back in the day. And he had become this, you know, Native American musical award-winning artist with his flute and his fiddle. And I had no, I like, I had no idea. And so he had a phone number on his website. And so I called him and I thought I was going to die. Like I was like, why am I even doing this? This It's so scary. And his wife, Kimberly picked up the phone and, and I said, hi, you know, is Arvel there? And she said, who's this? And I said, this is his niece, Melissa Bird, Vern's oldest daughter. And she just started crying. And anyway, we, we ended up talking and he actually reconnected me with Laverna, my grandmother. And we talked and wrote letters back and forth. She was very disappointed I wasn't a member of the LDS church because she was a very staunch LDS woman. And so there was a lot of pretty hurtful rhetoric there. But through her, I connected with, actually through Arvel, I think I connected with my cousin, Vanessa, and my cousin, Stephen. And my cousin, Stephen lives on the Navajo Nation. And then my cousin, Vanessa lives here in Oregon. And so it was through them that I started really putting the pieces of our lives back together and learning more about, you know, our Native American, who we are and our clan, the Shibwit clan, and, and really learning about that indigenous identity. And it's been a really fascinating process because we complicate it so much you know, I started learning about what it would mean to enroll and I can't enroll because my great grandmother opted not to in 1936. She started the process, but she opted not to because they wanted her to move to live on the reservation and she didn't want to. And so there's a lot of complication when it comes to that identification. And it wasn't until I met one of my really good friends here in Oregon And she looked at me and she's like, you know, that this is in your blood. Like your ancestry is in your blood. It's who you are. And it doesn't matter if you are enrolled or not, you are a Shivwit Paiute. And yet at the same time, there was all of this stuff coming out about pretendians. There's this horrible term. It's so awful. And there's this list that's been put out of academics who are supposedly not really quote unquote Indians, like they're not Native American, except for they all totally are. And there is this idea of what it means to be an indigenous Native American person in the United States that varies depending on who people are. And it's because of colonialization and it's because of white supremacy and it's because And this is something I like to tell, like really explain to people. Historically, when you think about the one drop rule for blood, the one drop rule for Africans was to create a workforce, right? Of people. The one drop rule for Native Americans, for indigenous people on this land was to annihilate them completely and eliminate them from the face of the earth. So we're doing that pretty effectively here you know, in the, in North America and in other parts of the world. And it's so complicated. And yet we, we drill it down to 
enrollment, which by the way, is a very separatist construct that people don't understand. And so (laughs) reconnecting with my cousins and the people who understand our language and our history and who want to reconnect me to those things has been a really emotional journey. It's a lot. It's a lot. And finding those letters from my great grandma, like my cousin sent them to me and just reading that story of her trying to figure out who our great, great grandparents were and confirming who our great, great grandparents were and when they died and how they died is really, it's amazing. And it's also the untold, I think those are the stories we don't talk about. You're listening to the Passionistas Project podcast in our interview with Dr. Melissa Bird. To learn more about her Misfit Magic Hour, one-on-one coaching, and masterclass series, visit naturalbornrebel.com. If you're enjoying this interview and would like to help us continue to create inspiring content, please consider becoming a patron by visiting thepassionistasproject.com backslash podcast and clicking on the patron button. Even $1 a month can help us continue our mission of inspiring women to follow their passions. Now here's more of our interview with Melissa. In 2017, you founded Natural Born Rebel. So what is the mission of Natural Born Rebel and how did you get started with it? I didn't want to go into academia. I mean, let's be real. I will not go work for a research one institution and a tenure track position. Like I was like, I was not having it. I disrupt all the things. So I did not want to do that. And I happened to go on a retreat with the coach. Susan Hyatt was my coach. And I went on this retreat and she's like, we need to get you up on stages and you need to be talking to people. And you know, you've got this vision and this mission of helping women really find their voice. And we've got to figure that out. I was like, okay, whatever. Like I'm just in Scotland, like peeling apart all the layers of what the heck am I doing next? And two things happened on that trip. One was that I decided that I was going to become a coach and really start to create programs where I could help take, I taught social justice and advocacy in schools of social work for like 15 years. And I wanted to bring all that to the masses. Like I wanted to really help people learn how they could engage in advocacy on their own terms. And so I did that. And then the other thing that happened was that I had the vision for the mermaid's garden, which we'll get to in a second, I'm sure. But I met a woman named Susie while I was there and we didn't talk after 20 after we left Scotland, basically, like we'd talk every once in a while, but you know, we lost touch. And then randomly she called me a couple of years later and she's like, I just got this divine download for you. And you're supposed to start this thing called natural born rebel. And I just bought you the URL and you need to teach this thing called rebel school. And these are all the components you need to put into rebel school. And we need you to write a book. And in that book, we want you to talk about these things. And so I'll send you the URL and did you take notes because I've got to go back into a meeting and I just want to make sure you're going to follow through with this. And I was in a lift going to the airport because I'd been flown to San Bernardino to teach a class on social justice, right? And the lift driver says, does this happen to you often? And I was like, well, kind of, but not that directly. So I get on the plane and I've got all this stuff from Susie. And I just started writing and I outlined and wrote like half the book on the plane to, from San Bernardino to Portland, Oregon. Right. And then I get home and I just start like all this stuff just starts flooding out of me. 
I called the person who did my original website for Bird Girl Industries and I said, I'm transitioning to Natural Born Rebel and I need you to build me a website. And these are the things that have to be on it. Here's the lesson. Like, listen, when you get the messages that seem totally random and out there, they're not. Because what has happened is that Rebel School has evolved into this, I can't even explain, it's soul school. It is so beautiful. And it's gone from being this 16 week, I don't know what the hell I'm doing here, have a couple of one-on-one coaching sessions to this 18 week program that is the most gorgeous, amazing thing that I have ever had the the privilege of facilitating. And the book is free on my website, Natural Born Rebel. And there's journal prompts in it that are amazing. And I'm actually just getting ready to do the second edition of it because now that I've been doing rebel school for so long, I just think there's so much that's not in there that I want people to know. And I would not be here teaching, doing this work, coaching, because I do one-on-one coaching. And then I do clairvoyant readings where someone comes and, and brings me a, a problem they want clarity on with their business or their life. And we do a reading and it's amazing. And I just never would have thought that I'd be sitting here having this conversation with y'all about how like I'm a lay preacher and a clairvoyant, which is like, you know, I mean, no, this was, this was not the grand plan when I got a PhD four years ago. I can, I didn't know what, what, how natural born rebel would happen. Tell us about Misfit Magic Hour and how those sessions work. Oh my gosh, they're so fun. I had no idea. Again, this is me listening. So my amazing virtual assist, assistant, Emma, she was like, I, I told her, I was like, I, I finished clairvoyance training because I did this huge year-long clairvoyance training. That's what I did in the pandemic is I was like, I'm going to totally figure out how to channel dead people. Like, who doesn't want to be able to do that? I was like, okay. <laughs> so I finished my clairvoyance training and Emma was like, you need to start doing readings. And I was like, oh no, Emma, I no, I do this and this and this. And Emma's like, no, we're going to call it Misfit Magic Hour. And you're going to just, you're going to give people clarity and confidence in one hour. And then people will learn what it's like to work with you. And I was like, oh no, 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 I'm not going to publicly like, what are you talking about? She's like, don't worry. I've got all the copy done. We're just going to make it happen. And we're launching in two weeks. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) now I have to start telling people that I'm going to do like channeling and clairvoyance and coaching with them. And Emma was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my God. She's like, if you're going to be fine. And I'm like, I don't know. What if people hate me? Like, what if I say something stupid? What if the ghosts don't come in? Like, what if I can't connect with spirit? And I've made this promise. So the coolest part about Misfit Magic Hour, it's so good. So it's like 20 minutes of coaching. So people come in. I tell people, come in with two or three things that you really want clarity on, whether it's in your life or in your business. And then this, the last like 25 minutes are a card reading where I either use Oracle cards or tarot cards, depending on my mood and the person. And we do a reading to talk about their current situation, what they need to know, and then their their future situation. Like, if you do these things, this is what could happen. Never in a million years, y'all, did I think I was going to have so much fun doing this because I was like all serious. I was like, well, if I'm going to channel people, like, no, it's like so incredible. The things that I see visually, like... It's amazing what spirit can do to get the message across. I had no idea. Because Eileen, my teacher, gave me all these tools. And and so now I have this framework to go on. But I've turned it into my own, which is the point. Because we can't all do things the same. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And everyone who does them is like, 
oh my God, I feel so clear. I'm going to sign up again. You know, like it's just, it, it's, it's so hard to explain it. But all I can say is that I get the best visuals. I had one client whose heritage is all Russian and I spirit ended up giving me all of her grandmas as these Russian nesting dolls. And they kept pulling out messages. And like, I had one reading where everyone was in a spiral moving out and it was just like hundreds and hundreds of just spirit just there to hold her because she was in a crisis. And they were like, we're right here and we're holding you. Like I see like spirit doing this, like we're holding you, like we're rocking you, like we are holding you. And like, I had like this whole reading where um, people were like frolicking naked through a field and they were like, just be free, just be free. And I was like, all of a sudden your spirit guides are a bunch of hippies. I don't know what's going on. I get these visuals that are never the same. And they're so unique to the person that I'm reading for. And it's, I'm like, what is happening? You know how scary it is for me to even admit this? Because I'm like, you know, I got the whole witch wound getting burned at the stake thing. Like, you know, I literally in a dream the other night, I was talking to my friend, Stephanie. I need to call her and tell her about this. She picked me up in a limo. It was fabulous. And she's like telling me this message that was being given to me in my dream. And I was like, people are going to think I'm mad. Because this is what we do to women who are healers and prophets and preachers. There's that beautiful song, the high women sing the high women song. It's an archetype from throughout history of like a witch and a preacher and a freedom writer and someone, an immigrant. It's beautiful. But the, the, the context of the song is that we come back over and over and over again, and that you will never eliminate us even when you try. It's a beautiful song. And it's the fact that I'm able to even have this conversation with you, Amy and Nancy, you would have, you could have knocked me over with a feather. If you would have told me this is my life five years ago, I would have been like, uh, no, I don't think so. Did you always have an ability to see things? What triggered you going to, to take these lessons? I've always been magic. Always. Like I've always been able to like, the first dead person I actually saw was my dad. He came and told me to take care of my mom. And, and I very distinctly remember it. And so I've always had the, the feeling or the vision that I could. I used to make little magic birds nests out of grass in the backyard, like all over the place. And then all of a sudden birds would just come and nest in them. Like, you know, I was like, I didn't think that was actually going to work, you know, <laughs> and the quail would come and, you know, get in my nest. It was awesome. Not my expectation, but there it was. So I've always felt magic. I have my, I can connect people. Like I, when I listen to people speak, I go, oh, okay. You need this person and this person and this person and this person. And that is one of the magical things that I do is I connect people to that, to other people. I'm a web weaver. That's what I do. But what spurred me to go work with Eileen and, and be taught was that I had some very large intuitive hits about some really big things that happened and it scared me. And I had had a friend of mine say, you know, you really, you need to understand this more and you, what you're, what's happening is you're being called into understanding your own particular brand of magic and what you do and listening to your intuition because you see things very differently. And the other thing she said to me is that back in the early days of Christianity, like 10, we're talking 10th, 11th century days, 
there were groups of women that would navigate between the pagans and the Christians. So they were the bridge between the two. There wasn't such a separation. And she said, that's just you. You are the bridge builder. You go back and forth and that's who you are. And that's who you're meant to be. And stop thinking you have to be one thing or the other. And that was actually a huge part of my coaching with Susan was I was like, if people find out that I am both a Christian, I love Jesus. Social justice, Jesus is my favorite Jesus. And like that I love Jesus and that I do magic and I read tarot and I channel dead people. Either the witches are going to hate me because I love Jesus and I believe deeply in the Trinity or they're going to kick me off the pulpit at church and I'm not going to be able to preach anymore because I'm a witch. And in fact, my priest at one point, he's like, can you stop with the witchcraft thing? And I was like, no, not really. And then I started telling him about how the pagans used to be bridge builders and all this stuff. And he found a paper, like a booklet that he had from a researcher in Scotland who had researched those women in his office at church. Thank you, Jesus. Right after I told him about this and he's like, you're not going to believe what I found. Here you go. And I was like, see, I told you like, there's nothing wrong with me. And I thought for sure, no one's going to hire me. No one's going to want to learn from me. And all of a sudden y'all like these women are coming to me and they're like, I love Jesus too. And I'm totally a witch. I'm like, here, I thought I was coming up with this innovative hashtag Christian witch. No, I was not. No. You can follow hashtag Christian witch on Instagram. And I was like, oh my gosh, we're everywhere. I was like, whoa. Because you know, we get trained by misogyny and patriarchy that you have to pick a thing. And actually, when I did my dissertation, my dissertation was about how women in rural California navigate religious stigma to get contraception. And it's a, you know, I did all these interviews with women to ask them how they navigated religious stigma and slut shaming to get contraception. And it was all based on the Madonna whore binary that you are supposed to be a virgin until you are married. And then you are supposed to be a whore. We have this dichotomy that we live with that virgin whore dichotomy that of course started in the Bible with Eve and Mary. And that binary is what keeps us in our place as women. And so I, it's that same binary that says you can be this or you can be this, but you can never be both of those things. It's why there's this huge joke in the gay community by now, gay later, right? Like it's why it was so hard for me to say, I had to pick, right? Like, oh, if I'm with women, I'm a lesbian, but if I'm men with men, I'm straight, which I'm not. And, you know, like we put people in these boxes and we categorize everyone. It's the thing I was talking about with being Native American, like either you're native, you got to know what percentage you are of Native American. And I'm sitting here going, but I know these things that I have found out only in the last six months are are spiritual practices that were handed down by my tribe that I just know that I didn't know that I knew until like I read a paper on it. Like we put ourselves in these categories and say, this is who you are and you have to be this way your whole life. And we're not, I mean, look at all this work y'all are doing with Pachinistas. Like the stories you all are telling and the diversity of thinking that you are tapping, it's, it's amazing. Talk about the importance of um, leading with intuition and, and just following your feelings. I think it goes beyond knowing what you want because most of my clients actually don't have a clue what they want, <laughs> right? Like they're like, I don't know what I'm doing, but here I am. But most people who join Rebel School are like, I don't know what this is exactly, but I just signed up. <laughs> 
like I don't know what I'm doing here but here I am I just felt compelled and I was like oh good you fit perfect so I think some of it is thinking about we all this externalized information about who we're supposed to be I remember when I was getting divorced from my ex-wife and I kept calling my psychic like I like I was text messenger I was like what's gonna happen next what's gonna happen next what's gonna happen next and she's like you already know and I'm like I don't like that answer. I need you to tell me, right? So we go to other people to get information. And what I do when I'm working with my clients is I'm like, here's the information. Now you have to take it and decide what resonates with you and what you're going to leave behind. Because we could go to other people all day long to try and get more information. But if we don't listen to our hearts and we don't listen, not just our intuition, but our hearts that say, hey, how about we just love ourselves more today? If we don't have more self-compassion for ourselves and the things we want to do, then we're not going to go out and do the things we are here to do. I was listening to Megan Watterson is an author. She wrote a really great book called Mary Magdalene Revealed about the gospels of Mary Magdalene, the lost gospels of Mary Magdalene. It's so amazing, y'all. And she talks about how the body is the soul's reason for being here. So without the body, the soul can't come in, right? And if each one of us in these bodies, as I'm looking at my little kiddos, they're two completely different souls, right? Three, actually, because I have an older one, but I'm not looking at her right now because she's in college. Thank God. As I look at my kids, as I look at the kids when I used to teach preschool, as I look at each one of these little individual humans and us as adults, like we are each here with a purpose. We are each here with a purpose on purpose. And we have to listen to that purpose, no matter how bananas it sounds, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel, no matter how mundane we think it is, it's still our purpose. And that's why we're here. And we can avoid it, which makes us sick a lot of the time, right? Whether it makes us this body, mind, spirit, this concept of reconnecting to ourselves because we get disconnected after we're about six and we start going to public school. We start going to school, we get disconnected from our intuition because, you know, we got to, you got to sit in that chair. You got to listen to the teacher who knows everything. And that's when we stop listening to everything around us. And so if we get back to this idea that we know what it is, it was me when I was six and, and building bird's nests in the backyard and just laying there and just humming along and singing and, you know, just whatever. Come on in little birds. Cause I really loved the birds. I mean, I'm Dr. Melissa Bird. Who doesn't love the birds? So really thinking about those things that before they were yelled out of us, beaten out of us, taken away from us, patriarchally removed from us. What was that thing? And we all have it. And it's still there. Sometimes it's just a little more distant than we'd like it to be. Thanks for listening to the Passionistas Project podcast and our interview with Dr. Melissa Bird. To learn more about her Misfit Magic Hour, one-on-one coaching, and masterclass series, visit naturalbornrebel.com. Please visit thepassionistasproject.com to learn more about our podcast and subscription box filled with products made by women-owned businesses and female artisans to inspire you to follow your passions. Get $45 worth of free goodies with a one-year subscription using the code WINTERGOODIES.
and be sure to subscribe to the Passionistas Project podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming inspiring guests. Until next time, stay well and stay passionate.